Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. A goosebump greeting. When he came on the field in pregame, fans were standing and cheering. There was a loud roar well before first pitch. He has evolved into a transcendent fusion of skills, body type, and pure charisma that has no comparison. He is baseball's unicorn. Anticipation to see what... Oh, goodness! the ballpark the hardest hit ball by a red this year that was nearly 115 it brought everyone to their feet lark statcast projected that ball to go nearly 460 feet that ball is destroyed daniel cruz bashes to right center is he for real he's gonna go three Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Today is June 8th, 2023. I am your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. We have a lot to talk about today. Of course, we're going to start with Ellie De La Cruz, who has had an incredible debut to Major League Baseball. We're going to get into Luisa Rise trying to hit 400. We have to talk about Jacob DeGrom's injuries. We're going to talk a little bit about potential sellers at the upcoming trade deadline. And then, as always, Matt and I have a couple of guys you should know more about. And as I joke pretty much every week, we shouldn't always do like pop-up relievers. We're going to get real deep into pop-up relievers, I'm sorry to say. Matt, you and I, uh, as it is Thursday afternoon, are both currently watching the Dodgers and the Reds. At least I am on my phone over here because Ellie De La Cruz, when he was called up the other night, came with an incredible amount of hype. I think it in part because we can track a lot of stuff in AAA now. And we knew he had like the hardest track to throw in the minors. And we knew he had the fastest home to third in the minors. And I want to say he lived up to it in the first two games, but that feels like wildly underselling it. Like a, the Reds look interesting. B they've had two pretty big comebacks against the Dodgers. Uh, and I can't remember if I said one and two and a and B now third, uh, he's looked great. Like this is the most fun I've had watching a, a brand new in-season debut in a long time, I think. And this, I will say, is one of the the great things about baseball and the minor leagues and players debuting during the season, right? Like, in the NFL, you don't get like, oh, it's like week eight and like, hey, like, the quarterback from Penn State has like left college and suddenly is like starting for your NFL team. Like, it's pretty cool. Like, it's one of those things. It kind of gives a jolt to the season. I remember a couple years ago, Wander Franco came up and it was like a big deal and really cool and really fun. And De La Cruz, man, like 
not just the first two games, about like two minutes before we started recording, he beat out an infield hit against Clayton Kershaw and then stole second base, which is hard to do. Clayton Kershaw has has a very good move to first base. So like he's already doing stuff like as we as we speak. So yes, it's been there was a lot of hype around him. I mean, we talked about him on the podcast like a month ago, just some of his statcast feats. And he has comfortably lived up to it, possibly exceeded it. I mean, like at least within two two games of like what you could expect. Because a lot of times guys come to the majors and understandably struggle. You know, his first game, he like hit a pitch over his head for a double at like 112 miles an hour. And also had a couple of really good at-bats where he like drew walks on like some really tough pitches. And then last night, what was it? He had 460 feet and then he had the fastest home to third time. It's just, it's wild. I'm not going to bog us down and just mindlessly reciting StatCast metrics, but he did so much stuff in two games. He has the Reds' two hardest hit balls of the season and the two fastest sprint speeds and the longest home run of the season and Major League Baseball's fastest home to third time. And he did it in two games. And the funny thing is, he hasn't done the thing that I'm most uh, expecting him to do yet, which is I think he's going to end up with the the best or at least strongest infield arm in baseball, right? He had in the minors the uh, hardest tracked infield assist I think we've ever had at 100.2. And in the first two games, there hasn't been a great opportunity for him to really air it out. And I feel like if we had waited a day or two or maybe even an hour or two because they're playing right now, we might have had like another superlative to add on to the L.A. De La Cruz file and i i feel like we're putting too much on him for two days worth of business but i i saw someone i can't remember who it was tweet uh they need to give him the wander franco contract today and not wait because if it keeps going on like this you know who knows where this is going to go and then the longer i watch the reds which i've been doing this week because they're playing the dodgers and because i want to see la daily cruise they're fun like i don't know that they're good um but I, if you were to like rank the most fun teams is it them and Arizona, which is kind of a really weird combination of teams for people who aren't like total baseball nerds? I think so. I think we, we touched on a little bit last week, I think, talking about the NL Central. And I might have undersold them a little bit because I said like, oh, it's a little – I mean, this is before De La Cruz came up. And I said something to the effect of like, hey, it's kind of a combination of, you know, kind of 4A pop-up guys and kind of second-tier prospects, which it kind of is. But like these guys look like – Play like Spencer Steer like looks like a good a good player and obviously Matt McClain was a first round pick and and looks like a player all the way as like a four ninety Babbitt but like he still looks like like a good player and then you know De La Cruz kind of takes it to another level not to mention on the pitching side Hunter Green tons of fun Alexis Diaz tons of fun as a brief aside on Alexis Diaz is it me or did it feel like he kind of came out of nowhere last year which is kind of surprising because he's Edwin Diaz's brother but it was like it almost felt like oh like yeah Edwin Diaz is a brother but it's like no he's also really nasty and extremely extremely dominant he came out of nowhere last year because he didn't have like prospect helium that I can recall and because the Reds were not a very good baseball team and in a market when they're not very good you don't pay that much attention so I agree with you he kind of came out of first it was oh hey Hey, Edwin Diaz has a brother. That's kind of fun. And then only later it was, oh, wait, that that guy is actually pretty good. The, the thing I'm hoping for for the Reds, and I'm not 100% sure this is going to happen. I want Joey Votto to have one last ride with these guys. Because in like 25 years, when we are arguing about whether Ellie De La Cruz should get into the Hall of Fame, which I assume will be some sort of floating hover Hall of Fame at that point, I want to be able to look back and say, and he played with Joey Votto. That's so cool. And like Joey Votto's recovering in AAA. He had, uh, I think, shoulder surgery. I don't think the rehab's gone super well, and he wasn't that good last year. I don't know what's going to happen. And 
they have enough infielders without him, but I want that. I really want that. It sort of it feels like a like a like a cop movie cliche. Like, all right, one last job. We're like, sorry, not a cop movie. Like a like a heist movie cliche. Like one last one last job. Like bring Joey Votto for. I'm too old for this. <laughs> but uh, you know, one thing that's interesting about the Reds and it, this the the other weird way they like were in the the sports zeitgeist last week was Kirk Herbstreet like getting angry at the athletic for reporting <laughs> yes. that they might consider trading Jonathan India. But what is really interesting is if you look at their pros- their top prospect list, their top five guys are all infielders, right? They already have, they already have, I guess they have, that includes McLean and De La Cruz, right? Um, but then you, you have Jonathan India, who's like a young big leaguer, you know, rookie of the year a couple of years ago. Um, and that's where this came from. Cause like they have, they, they have India, already who's more good not great but has become kind of like a team leader you have McLean you have De La Cruz and then you have Noelve Marte who was the prize of the Luis Castillo trade last year who's playing very well at double a at 21 years old and then you have Cam Collier who was their first round pick last year and then you have Edwin Arroyo I think I can't remember did they get him in one of those trades last season I can't even recall probably the amount of infield talent they have it was a Seattle trade I looked it up yeah so he also, he also came in the Seattle so it's like the amount of infield talent that this organization has is really exciting and really interesting and like no I don't think that like they're going to trade Jonathan India right away especially with the team playing well right now but like these are good problems to have if you're the Reds, right? Not only on top of that, they've got a guy at AAA, their number seven prospect, Christian Encarnacion Strand, who's hitting, and this is real, 349-408-711 um, at AAA. So they could have like another – he's kind of more of a bat-first guy, um, so he could maybe more of a DH type. But like this could be another guy who comes up soon and adds another like young, interesting, exciting player to the mix. So if you're a Reds fan, you know, it's a it's a fun time. I mean, there's still, what, four games under 500, but it's a division that we talked about last week, extremely winnable, and they definitely have the best vibes in the division right now. I'll say that. Can we, um, is it possible to get last week's entire podcast stricken from the record? Like, can we just get it removed from our feed for nobody ever here? Because I'm pretty sure at some point you and I both said, Oh, the Cardinals are definitely going to win this garbage division. And oh, then what happened? Now the Cardinals are 11 games under 500. I believe the worst record in the National League. I'm not trying to make this like hashtag Cardinals talk here. Um, but since we're talking about the NL Central, I no longer believe it's obvious the Cardinals are going to win the division. I don't trust any of these five teams. I might take all five of them above any of the five teams in the American League Central. That's a totally different conversation. But the Reds. I think what's going to happen here, and we're going to get into a little bit like trade deadline stuff, but um, the Reds aren't going to sell, I don't think, because now they're interesting and they're good and they're kind of fun. And you just said like the word, you said the V word, you said the vibes word. And there's no better way to kill the vibes than to start trading away really interesting, fun players because they're only five games out of first place right now. They might sweep the Dodgers today. They might add or sell and add at the same time. I don't think they're going to trade Diaz. I don't think they're going to, I mean, India, if they get like a good starting pitcher back, Sure, but I, I think this is a this is a, new, a the beginning of the next good Reds team. I guess the first way to put it. Yeah, for sure. And we didn't even mention that Andrew Abbott, their number six prospect, debuted this week. Yeah. So it's like it's 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 great. It's it's a fun it's a fun time to be a Reds fan. It's a great baseball town. Um, when the you know when the Reds, when, especially when the Reds are good. I mean, just the other night I saw Mark Sheldon, our reporter, had this in his story that like compared to a typical Tuesday, De La Cruz's debut got 6,000 more fans than the normal game. Like there's, there's, there's some juice right there. So it's uh it's, it's pretty cool to see. 
As it turns out, people very much enjoy watching interesting, good young baseball players. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Picciolo and Matt Myers. Each week we go into our three batter minimum segment where we pick three of the most interesting topics of the week. And I can't think of too many things more interesting right now than Luis Arise, who is hitting 403. And even if you are a curmudgeon like myself who doesn't make much use of batting average, even I will not look past the man hitting over 400 in June. That's super cool. I'm pretty sure, uh, as much as I hate giving credit to my podcast co-host and good friend Matt Myers here, the first time I heard Luis Arise's name was, uh, yeah, I could see him doing a little dance there. When Matt brought it up and said, hey, this is like four years ago, there's this guy in it, uh, AAA or just came up with a twin named Arise. I really like him. We should talk about him. And I said, great. Who? And uh, boy, did I undersell him because it's June 8th and he's hitting 403. And wow, is he interesting. Admittedly, part of what I liked about him was that like in the like launch angle era of play, whatever you want to call it, of players trying to hit home runs, he was like different. Like I like players who are different, who do things a different way. So he was definitely was and is this throwback who was just an extreme contact hitter. But it's like it's not just contact. It is line drives all the time. And in the past, there's been like, you know, a little bit of just like not you don't want to say empty batting average. Um, but like sometimes it is like if if you hit 300 and they're all singles, there's a ceiling to your value. But this year he's hitting 400 and they're mostly singles. And he's actually fourth in the majors in weighted runs created plus. Weighted runs created plus. I actually just looked this up right now. I didn't even realize number five is my guy from like three weeks ago, Ryan Noda. I didn't even realize he's now fifth in the majors in weighted runs created plus. But that's it. he's like basically the opposite of Luis Arise. And so like – this is awesome. You know, chasing 400 is just fun, and he almost certainly won't do it. But every day that goes by that he stays above 400, it gets more interesting. And even four years later from when he debuted or where it was, like, he's different. There aren't really many guys like him, so we should celebrate that. Would you allow me a moment for a baseball-related rant? Um, clearly, when you're talking about a guy and the first thing you talk about is batting average and the fact that his hard hit rate is terrible, it's in like the second percentile. There's a huge new school, old school divergence there. And a lot of times, and you have seen this a lot lately, the uh, conversation comes to, oh, these stack cast nerds, they don't appreciate this guy. They think he stinks because he doesn't hit the ball that hard. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, his OPS is 947. He, what did you just say? He had like the top five weighted runs created plus in baseball. Like He's awesome. He's incredibly valuable. Does he hit the ball hard? No. But I think if you were to say, hey, um, Statner, there's a guy with a 452 on base percentage who plays like a competent enough middle infield. Would you find that player valuable? Like, yes. <laughs> I find him extremely valuable. And to that point, people are complaining that he is overperforming his like expected stats. You know, and they're like, well, that means they're broken. Uh, to which I say, He's hitting 402 or 03 or whatever we're up to. Of course he's overperforming. How do you do that without a little bit of good batted ball luck? He has, at the moment, the highest batting average in balls in play in the history of baseball. So is that maybe StatCast isn't capturing all of his skills? Possibly so. It's also because he's getting at least a little fortunate. You have to if you're going to hit 400. Like That's just the way the baseball world works. He can be good and lucky and old school can like him and new school can like him. Why are we arguing about this? Loser eyes is great. 
Agreed. I mean, for context, when when Ichiro had like his best season, I guess, 2004, when he hit 372, he had a 399 batting average on balls in play. So that's kind of like, I think that's probably the most recent kind of similar comp. He's not exactly like Ichiro because you know, Ichiro got a lot of hits with his speed of kind of like swinging, like like swinging while he started moving towards first. Um, and Arise doesn't really do that. But in terms of just like, oh, I'm going to pepper line drives all over the field, there are there are some similarities there. I've got a good stat for you. This one, it might be new to a lot of people. It's called batting average plus, right? Any plus stat is just like indexed to that season where 100 is league average, like OPS plus, right? 100 is league average. And the reason this is interesting is because batting average across the majors is generally a lot lower than it used to be. It's 247 so far this year. If you go back all the way to 1920, 104 seasons, 247 is the ninth lowest. And all the ones that were lower were either late 60s, early 70s, or the last three seasons. And so what you can do is you can compare a guy to the context of his times. For example, when Ted Williams hit 406 in 1941, uh, the major league average was 261, much higher than it is today. And so if you were to rate every player in baseball history, AL and NL, by batting average plus, comparing his batting average to the baseline of the season, Lisa Rice is number one. Uh, I'm going to throw out DJ LeMahieu's 2020 because that was a shortened season. He is at a 161, a 61% better than average. The next best would be Ted Williams uh, in 1957 and the next Ted Williams in 1941. I don't actually think Lisa Rice is Ted Williams, but I do think that's a uh, underrated aspect of this is that he is doing this in an era where it's harder than ever to do this, where batting averages are low. Uh, he's not really a guy aided by the shift ban because he didn't really get shifted last year at all. I think we can look at him and say, but, Batting only, not defense, not running, obviously. He is as close to Tony Gwynn as I think I have seen since peak Tony Gwynn. You know, like I, Gwynn, when he was younger, was a good outfielder and he could steal bases, and that's that's not a rise. But just in terms of making a ton of contact and having a, just the tiniest little bit of power, this is kind of the profile I remember. Yes, the whole Tony Gwynn thing was like the 5.5 hole, right? You know, he I don't want to say slap the ball because he had the ball hard between between short and third, as well as a lot of just like low line drives opposite field to left center field. And I feel like that's that's the Arise special. It's just like a low line drive single right over the shortstop said. Uh, I'm going to be a bit of a buzzkill just for a second. The Marlins have won six games in a row, and I think people are getting excited about that. I must point out. All six of those games came against Oakland and Kansas City. I know like wins are wins. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. Luis Arise had a 330 batting average in May. And then against Oakland and Kansas City, he hit 560. Like these are maybe the two weakest pitching staffs in baseball. Yes. In defense of the Marlins, they're playing this well, despite getting basically nothing from Jazz Chisholm, who's been hurt for now for a few weeks. And Sandy Alcantara has been just like, okay, you know, maybe... Less than less than, less okay. than okay. ERA over five. Well, what's weird? What's weird about him, right? What's weird about Alcantara is the way he's treated as a pitcher, and this is I think this spans manager. Like it's almost like his box score lines are like out of the eighties. Like he'll have games where he pitches like eight innings with like six runs allowed, and like no other pitcher is allowed to do that. He's had a few outings where he's like been good into the sixth, and then like. He gives up runs in like the seventh and eighth, which is like unheard of in this day and age. Most pitchers, it's like you only get to go into the seventh if you're absolutely like dominating and have a low pitch count. And he, I mean, his his strikeouts are down, his walks were up. Like I'm not saying he's been as good. Like I'm not saying he's been anywhere near as good as he was last year. I do think he gets treated very differently than almost any other pitcher in baseball. And that there are some things that. I'm not sure if he's a victim of how he's managed. It's just interesting that basically like there's literally no other pitcher who's managed the way he is. 
Um, I think that's fair. I also think it's fair that he was probably maybe a little overhyped last year, and then they went and made all their infield defense worse, and now he's maybe a little underhyped this year. All right, our second topic. I hate to talk about this, but it happened, and really my only reaction is this stinks. Uh, Jacob DeGrom is going to have Tommy John surgery. He well, I should point out he's going to have elbow surgery. They haven't clarified as far as I've seen whether it's the uh, full Tommy John or like this internal brace, which is kind of an alternate procedure where you could potentially come back a little sooner. But anyway, definitely out for the remainder of this year. Highly likely he is out for most or all of next season. Um, And remember, he's going to turn 35 in like a week. So by the time he comes back, we're talking 36, 37 years old. It was an interesting note. I didn't realize maybe you did uh, that they had they had looked ahead when they signed this contract and so they had put in a a clause in there that said so he signed from 2023 to 2027 texas has a conditional option for 2028 that would be triggered if a whole bunch of stuff but one of those things is if he has tommy john surgery now that i think about it i wonder if internal brace counts as that or not that's a 2028 problem but what the thing here is before this news came out, I had said to Matt, hey, we should talk about the Rangers because, um, you know, are they just overperforming? And I noticed that Fangraphs actually had them as the favorite to win the American League West, which I thought was really interesting. But at the time, that included, what did I say, 80 innings that they thought you might still get out of Jacob deGrom. And that's obviously not going to happen now. And if you were to look at the uh, odds today, Texas has a four and a half game lead in the division, and it's almost a coin flip. If you look at the Fangraphs odds, 46% to 45%. And I think that is is interesting that even without DeGrom, um, they still view Texas as being this strong of a team, right? Like the offense has been very good. We've talked about this. The rotation's been very good. The bullpen has not been very good. The biggest question to me is this. They've got a pretty good five-man rotation. Evaldi, John Gray, who's been great, Heaney, Martin Perez, Dane Dunning. They have no depth now, right? DeGrom's not coming back. Odorizzi's not coming back. Not that Kumar Rocker was in the picture, but he's out for the year. Their depth is Cole Reagans, Glenn Otto, Cody Bradford. Which of those three names did I make up? Can you guess? None of them. None of them. Okay, good guess. <laughs> but that you had to think about it for a second. And I don't know. I, obviously, this stinks because DeGrom maybe is the most dominating pitcher I think I've ever seen. Like at his peak, right, in 2021. I put him up there with, you know, I was in college in Boston when Pedro was at his best. I kind of put DeGrom from two years ago right up there with that. And that's usually the go-to for what's the most dominant pitching you've ever seen. It's Pedro in 1999. That's how good DeGrom was. So forget the Rangers. Just from a baseball point of view, this stinks. Like I wanted to see him pitch well. And this uh, this hurts his Hall of Fame chances too. It hurts a lot of things. I mean, this isn't like I, I, I was going to mention that I, it probably puts those to rest, frankly. It's like he's just like going to be hard to imagine that he has any chance of getting enough innings to be seriously considered as a Hall of Fame candidate, if I'm being honest. But then again, Mike, you and I will be voting by the time he gets to come up. So maybe all of these things will be reconsidered and there'll be a totally different discussion about starting pitchers because, you know, obviously as we've discussed in this podcast, they don't rack up wins or innings like they used to, and then maybe we'll just have to contextualize them with his peers and with his peers from like, you know, 2015 through 2022, he was over in like in total a top five pitcher and at his peak, the best pitcher um, in baseball and one of the most dominant pitchers of all time. You know, hopefully he can come back and still be something close to dominant. But as you said, it might not be till, I mean, how strongly... Do you think he will pitch next year? I'm not a betting man, but I would probably, if, if I weren't allowed to bet on such things, I don't think I would bet on him pitching next year. I would not think so either. I, you kind of threw me with the fact that we'll both be voting for the Hall of Fame by then, too. Uh, 
to kind of crib from a phrase properly accredited to Groucho Marx, I would think less of the Hall of Fame if they would let you and I vote on it. Because mm. <laughs> that's oh, that's kind of a that's mind blowing. Um, I don't think he's going to pitch next year. I don't think this knocks him out of consideration for the Hall of Fame because it doesn't matter. He was never going to get enough innings ever. Like he was never going to pitch enough innings to compare to Bob Gibson and Nolan Ryan and whoever else you want to compare him to. His case was always going to be about uh, absolute peak greatness, and I think. He still has a chance to come back and have one more great year and win a third Cy Young. And I think if you get three Cy Youngs, I don't care how many innings you have, right? That's that is good enough for me. Obviously, we are a long way from him winning a Cy Young. We're a long way from him pitching again. Um, I, this hurts his case, but I actually think it hurts it not in that he will not accumulate innings. It hurts it in the sense that for this year and for next year, he will no longer uh, be in consideration to win a Cy Young. I think that's what hurts it. I mean, it also hurts him, frankly, from the the hashtag narrative standpoint, right? Of like, if the Rangers were a competitive team this year, his first year with the team, and he pitches big innings, pitches in October, that stuff matters. Um, and so he's he's going to miss that opportunity with this this Rangers team. I mean, we're going to pivot to talk about the trade deadline in a second, and I think this maybe this is a good transition because the starting pitching lacks depth, but is good with as currently constituted. Jonathan Gray or John Gray had another great outing last night. He pitched a complete game, gave up one run and lost one nothing. Um, Ivaldi's been great. The bullpen, as you mentioned, they're going to need to make some trades if they really want to hold off the Astros, and that I think is where things get interesting. Yeah, the good news for them is that no other contender will need to trade for pitching. It certainly won't be a competitive market at all. So let's talk about our third topic. Uh, what is the trade deadline going to look like? Our friend and colleague uh, Mark Feinstein wrote something at the site today. It is titled Eight Potential Trade Chips Who Have Gotten Hot. He's talking about guys on teams, uh, you know, expiring contracts or teams who are unlikely to contend, players you might think might be traded uh, at the trade deadline. I looked this up uh, earlier this morning. There are currently eight teams with 10% or lower playoff odds, it's the first place you'd look at for teams that might be sellers. Not on the list is the Cubs, but things are going poorly for them. And there's a headline in The Athletic today that said, how do the Cubs not wind up selling at the trade deadline? So then tells you a little bit about how things are going there. Obviously, the same issue every year. If you are a team who is playing so poorly that two months before the trade deadline, we're talking about you as a seller. You may not have that many great pieces to sell. So we're talking about the A's and the Rockies and the Nationals and the Tigers and the Royals. One of the eight teams is the Reds, which I find really interesting. Uh, I guess the Cubs are actually on my list. I don't think the Reds are going to sell, as I said. But you look at some of these teams and, you know, how much are you getting out of the A's? I don't know. I, I wanted to point out there were two names on Mark's list that I find really interesting. Um, the first we talked a lot about a little bit, Alexis Diaz. But the, the two names I want to talk about are Heimer Candelario and Randall Grichik. So Randall Grichik's actually had a pretty good season. The, the thing is, do the Rockies ever actually trade at the deadline? I feel like they never, ever do. Like Even when you think they should, they just don't. Like That is not their DNA. And they're playing, they're in last place as expected, but they've actually been a little better than I would have thought. I mean, 26 and 37 isn't good. I, I had them down for 105 losses this year. I don't think that's how they operate. I really don't. Like, do you, do you really see them going out and saying, okay, we're going to start trading pieces? Um, What's a, what's Grichik's contract situation? I believe he's a free agent. He's a free agent. Year. So I could, I could maybe see it, but you're right. I mean, the, the Rockies are always unpredictable in these situ- situations. Is that part, and that part, that's part of what complicates things. And that's, I mean, I mean, you look at the the list. The only teams I'm confident will be trading will like be trading assets are the A's, Nationals, Royals, and Tigers. There's four teams, 
and a couple of those teams really don't have that much to trade. So as you said before about the Rangers, like there's going to be a lot of teams who are going to be focusing on like the same like eight players. So if it opens up to include the Cubs, I mean, the Cubs have a few relievers who are not like, oh, my game changers. But man, if you need bullpen depth, there are some guys in that team that could that you'd feel you'd be OK. I feel OK about, you know, Michael Fulmer. I feel good about, hey, Julian Merriweather, there might be some hidden upside there. We've talked about him before. Like there's there's some 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 names there that could make a difference. That's why I think the Cubs will ultimately end up selling because they have a lot to offer in the area that teams are going to be most desperate. It does seem like uh, the entire town of Chicago is going to be kind of a focal point here, right? Like neither of those teams are truly dreadful in the sense that like the A's are truly dreadful or the Royals are. And they both are in positions where they seem to want to contend. Like the Cubs are coming what they hope out of a down cycle. The White Sox seem to be headed into one. Maybe I'm not convinced either one will actually do it. But I, I also feel like if you're leading those teams, you have to look at the market and you say, well, there's not a lot of teams who are going to sell. There's a lot of teams who are going to be buying because there's an extra playoff spot. We could really make a big splash. And like, it's a fine line to walk here. Like, I'm not sitting here advocating for the White Sox to like, totally tank it up and lose 140 games next year. I don't necessarily think that's the right way. But we did just talk about the Reds and all the guys they just got from trading Luis Castillo last year and Tyler Molly. And, you know, they have turned it around, I think, quicker than we thought. Obviously, it helps to have had a farm system where you knew you were going to get Ellie De La Cruz. And the White Sox don't have that, for example. Um, but if you're the White Sox and you say, look, this isn't going to happen. Could you trade Luis, uh, Lucas Giolito, Michael Kopech, Dylan Cease, uh, you know, Liam Hendricks, a great story, obviously, but if he, if he shows he's back, how many teams will trade for him? You could do really well there. And then my last thought there is, uh, I think we talked about this like six years ago when they did that, <laughs> they traded Adam Eaton and they traded Chris Sale and they did get good players back. Like they got Juan Moncada and Lucas Giolito uh, and Michael Kopech and it didn't really work. So it's, it, there's never one right way to go about this, I guess, is the outcome. I look at the Reds, right? And a couple of years ago, they kind of made a decision to they they'd gotten really aggressive. I guess this was before the the pandemic season. Was it or right after when they signed they signed Castellanos and they signed uh Moustakis and they just traded for Trevor Bauer and they were like trying to like kind of go for it. They made the playoffs in the 2020 season and then they basically like started to strip down again. And they probably you can retrospect you you know, they probably didn't need to do that. They probably could have, like, tried to keep competing, especially in a division that didn't have a dominant team. But the decision to strip down and ultimately make that Luis Castillo trade and trade away uh, Tyler Malley to the uh, to the Twins last year, which brought them Spencer Steer, like, a couple of those trades. NCES and Encarnacion Strand. That was the same trade. Oh, there you go. So, like, you could disagree with that tactic a couple of years ago that maybe they should have tried to keep keep the team competitive. But it looks like it's really going to pay off now. And I kind of think the White Sox maybe could take a cue there. Because also, they're they're still going to have some of those, like, Luis Robert is going nowhere. I mean, I don't even know what to make of Eloy Jimenez at this point. But, like, he's not going anywhere, probably. So it's like they still have Yohan Moncada. They still have like these like, core guys who aren't old. They've been kind of disappointing, although Robert's been good this year. But they're not old. They still can be part of, like, the team you're trying to build. And then this offseason, if they add some young players, then they can maybe try and be aggressive and free agent. So it's like, I don't know if they're going to do it, but they obviously have the most, they have the most to trade. And they're going to be the, they they more so than the Cubs are going to be the focal point because they could really make things interesting depending on who they, who they decide to make available. The White Sox are going to have one representative on the All-Star team this year. Do you know who it's going to be? Because I do. Who? He was, he was one of my guys from like six weeks ago. Jake Berger? Jake Berger. <laughs> 
who's been great. He's been crushing the ball. I guess it could be Luis Robert, but there's a lot of outfielders. Uh, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with a pair of guys you need to know a little bit more about. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Matt and I like to end each week with a pair of players you should know a little bit more about. Mine comes from the Kansas City Royals, and I I started noticing him because we knew we were going to talk about players who might be traded. And so I was very surprised to find that Carlos Hernandez of the Kansas City Royals is having a fantastic year. He's a 26-year-old in his fourth season. And when I say I'm surprised, it's because his first three seasons with the Royals were straight up bad. I don't mean that disrespectfully. It's just true. He had a 5-12 ERA as a sometimes starter in parts of three seasons. A 17% strikeout rate is below average, and 11% walk rate is straight up bad. Last year, the four-seamer allowed a 366 average and a 581 slugging percentage for a negative 11 run value, despite the fact that every time I would go do searches for the hardest thrown fastballs, he would pop up. He averaged 97 miles an hour on his fastball the last two years. It was really bad. And if you look at the Kansas City pitching staff, this has kind of been an issue for them prior to this season for a couple of years. They're just they weren't getting enough out of players who had more talent. And now look at Carlos Hernandez this year. He has doubled nearly his strikeout rate from 17 percent to 33 percent. He has halved his walk rate from 11 percent to six rate, six percent. And you might go and look and say, well, yeah, but he's got a 445 ERA. That's not good. His 324 expected ERA and 266 FIP will tell you otherwise he's only 26 years old now usually when i see a guy who throws that hard and he starts throwing strikes my first thought is well maybe he took a little bit off maybe he's just trying to get it into the zone and he's not trying to you know throw it through the moon every single time he's actually throwing harder <laughs> his fastball is up to 99 miles an hour uh, that is the eighth hardest of anyone who's thrown at least 25 i would love at this point to tell you some great story about what he did differently but i gotta tell you i spent too much time trying to find out Pitches look the same. I can't see any major difference in like grip or throwing motion or whatever. Part of it is he was, they tried to make him a starter in years past. And this year he's just full-time reliever. Maybe it's a mentality thing. Maybe it's just a maturity thing. Maybe it's an experience thing. I don't really know. The fact is, this is a guy who last year was sent down to AAA multiple times on one of the weakest pitching staffs in baseball. And now all of a sudden he's throwing flames. He looks great. I don't know if he's going to get traded. I don't know if he's going to be the new closer when they inevitably trade Harold Chapman. But I can tell you this. He is the fourth different Carlos Hernandez to play in Major League Baseball. I remember the first guy. Maybe you do too, Matt. Uh, the first guy was a catcher in the 90s. He spent a lot of time backing up Mike Piazza with the Dodgers. He was there forever. I don't remember the other two Carlos's Hernandez. They're both around the turn, uh, turn of the century. And now this fourth one, Carlos Eduardo Hernandez, has turned himself into a guy who throws hard but isn't very good into potentially a very good reliever. And I would love it if somebody would tell me how this happened, because this is the kind of story the Royals desperately need. They overhauled their pitching infrastructure because they couldn't make these things happen. Now this is happening. It seems like a pretty good start for a team that I think really needed. one. Yeah, I didn't know anything about this guy until I saw him pitching in the World Baseball Classic for Venezuela. And I was watching the game and he was like throwing like 101. And I was just like, wait, who is who is this guy again? So he was... Uh, he was one of those. So yeah, good for the Royal. Your point is your point is well taken. Like they've they've tried to change the way they do pitching, and maybe this is step one because man, the, the Royals 
They need some some good stuff to happen. It's been they're only a couple games ahead of the A's. They just got swept by the Marlins. Four games. Uh, games. That's it. Jordan Lyles is zero and ten. Um, it's not. It's not great. Um, so any piece of good news is good news for the Royals. As Mike alluded to earlier, I will also be going deep into the random reliever bag for my guy this week. And my guy is Dory Moreta of the of the Pirates. As our own Justice De Los Santos wrote recently in his uh, Pirates news, newsletter, you can call him Big Bank, you can call him El Banco, you can call him Dinero Dory, or you, call, you can call him Money Moreta. Regardless of what you choose, just make sure there's currency in Dory Moreta's name. Dory Moreta is striking out... 36% of batters he's faced this year. That's top 4% of the league. He's got a 161 ERA, a 292 expected ERA. In that same piece, Justice asked his teammates where the Money Moreta uh, nickname come from. And apparently they were having a they were on a flight and they were playing a game. I don't know what game. And someone asked for change. And Moreta obliged by pulling out $2,000 worth of $20 bills. And all of his teammates were like, whoa, who's this dude? Uh <laughs> His walkout song at PNC Park is Here Comes the Money by Shane McMahon. And every time he finishes a successful outing, he holds up his fingers and does like the money sign. So he's really leaning into this this Money Moreta nickname. Um, I kind of enjoying the whole like WWE vibe that he's bringing to uh, to Major League Baseball. Um, but I, I may be underselling his his stuff. It's like really nasty. Um, if you go on base, if you go on Baseball Savant, it will tell you that he throws his quote-unquote slider 58% of the time. And I say quote-unquote because, as Mike pointed out to me when we were talking about Moreta uh, yesterday, it's unclear if it's actually a slider. It's got – it's. It, uh, how would you describe it, Mike? Uh, frustrating. <laughs> Justice uh, hit me up like two weeks ago saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about this pitch. And uh, my initial response to him was, I hate this pitch because – it is called a slider because he calls it a slider. I think it's a screwball. I think it's a screwball. It's kind of what it, 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 it's almost like. It's not quite like Kodai Senga's ghost fork, but it's in the same kind of category. I have a quote here from um, Jason DeLay, who's the catcher for the uh, Pirates, who spoke to Justice. And he's like, you can call it whatever you want. But in my mind, it's not a slider. And the pitching coach said, well, it is a slider, but it's more of a screwball for me. It's one of those pitches that like defies categorization. Uh, Dwayne Underwood said, this was in the uh, Pittsburgh Tribune. His slider moves two ways, and he and he says, and I quote, never seen anything like it in my life. It's one of the cooler things I get to see. That's amazing. I don't care what you call it at this point. When you can have like guys on your pitching staff and your catcher say, I don't know what the hell this thing is, you're doing something weird, and weird is generally good. Yeah, it reminds me a little of when Devin Williams came up and he like brought the airbender, and everyone was like, what is – we don't even know how to classify this thing. If you go on his Baseball Savant page, there's that section where it shows each pitcher's pitch types, and it shows the spin on the pitch. And for Moreta, it's just like kind of this like very slow – sideways spin. And if you watch the pitch, I like put together a reel of like his, his quote unquote sliders. It just kind of floats, you know, it's just, I think it's just hard to pick up and hitters don't see much like it. They just don't really know what, what to do with it. He was actually signed by the Reds originally in 2015 and just like, just kind of worked his way slowly through that system. But there were signs of this early on in 2016 in rookie ball, he struck out 56 guys in 33 innings. And then last November, the Reds, who were looking for shortstop depth, which seems silly now as we talked about all the infielders they have in their system, traded Moreta to the Pirates 
for uh, Kevin Newman. And minor trade, obviously, that has not really worked out well for the Reds because they don't really need Kevin Newman right now, who's also not especially a good player. And they could use a reliever like Moreta. Then again, in a similar kind of trade, they stole Colin, the Pirates stole Colin Holderman from the Mets. Actually, what am I saying? The Pirates benefited in both of these trades. The Pirates, um, if you're looking for reasons why they're overperforming, could be two of those um, small reliever trades that they've made um, for guys that they don't really need. I'm going to take us completely off the topic here in two ways. Um, They also made a great trade with the Mets, trading, I believe, Joey Lucchese for one of their top catcher prospects now in uh, Andy Rodriguez. I'm going to say this other thing as though I know what I'm talking about, and I don't. I'm basing this on like five seconds of Googling here. Did you earlier say that uh, Shane McMahon writes songs now? Is this like Vince McMahon's kid, like professional wrestler Shane McMahon? Because according to Google, this is his theme song, uh, but it is a Naughty by Nature song. I'm interested now if I'm wrong about this because everyone might be. I, I'll admit I copied and pasted it straight from Justice's story, so <laughs> I did not fact check it. Um, so uh, maybe there's egg on my face for this one. No, well, now I got. I can't believe I'm going to spend some of my precious moments on this earth seeing if Shane McMahon writes songs now. No, but it must be what it is. It must be that it was also Shane McMahon's walkout song. Is my guess putting two and two together. Gotcha. Um, I'm so glad you picked him because that is such a weird pitch, and it's good, right? Like it's really good. And you I mean I think the thing you've heard pitchers talk about more than ever is don't be average, right? Find something unique, whether it's a unique release point, a unique way your pitch moves. Uh, you know, a unique way to have seam shifted wake or or extension or whatever. Just unless you have overwhelmingly great stuff, you got to find some way to be different. Because if you're just like in the middle, guys are going to uh, kill you. And there's Dory Moreta with what appears to be a super weird pitch. So I'm glad. I'm I'm happy that you picked it. Thank you for choosing Dory Moreta. That will do it on this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.